Well, tonight we'll stay together. And um, I mentioned last week that these last two weeks, tonight and next week, which will be our last week, we'll look a little bit more closely at the forces in our lives that tend to really charge our relationships, like sexuality, indifference, cultural conditioning, power. And I think it's useful for me especially, but for all of us to have a real sense of humility because, uh, you know, to be talking about these things or even when we on our own are looking, being mindful of these things, we have to appreciate that we're, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We're not seeing what we don't see. But that doesn't excuse us from being interested and investigating and talking together. It's really hard to imagine how, as human beings, we would learn how to relate skillfully with each other if we didn't have some curiosity about what we could call sexual energy or sexuality or power or just the effects of cultural conditioning and the fear we have around difference and the ways we feel safer when we're around people who seem to be like us. And these, you know, in all these little and big ways have a governing effect on our relationships and more than that, just on the experience of happiness and unhappiness. So I did look up sexuality in Wikipedia (laughs) to express my humility around this subject. What is sexuality? (laughs) And they say, Human sexuality is the capacity to have erotic experiences and responses. So then I looked up erotic. <laughs> and it's like that. You know, one thing leads to another. I mean, we kind of know what it is, but it's uh, the boundaries aren't very clear with things like when we talk about sexuality or erotic tension or sexual desire or lust. And, uh, I mean, maybe when we were younger, (laughs) you know, it was like there were moments when, oh yeah, that's what lust is, or that's how sexual energy is charging this interaction I'm having with this other human being. So we tend to want to think about it or talk about it just in that extreme and uh, assume then all the other times we're not a sexual being or it's not part of who we are as a human being. And we feel like, you know, if we get that part under control, learn how to refrain ourselves from those, you know, really charged moments or just have them with a socially acceptable partner, then we don't have to be interested in this aspect of our lives or this aspect of our being. So just to start unpacking it, you know, one 
and, and always, of course, thinking about it in terms of our relating to another or to others. But as we've been finding, you know, we're always relating to the moment and we're relating to the body in the moment and we're relating to the stories in our mind in the moment, moment by moment by moment. So we're always in relationship and we're always relating to each other even if we're not around each other because I have a story about you that I'm relating to over and over and over again. So one thing that seems to be true about sexuality and how it might be charging our relationships is it has something to do with pleasure. So hopefully that's not rocket science to you. (laughs) You're like, yeah, it has something to do with pleasure. And uh, there's this uh, thing that's not that hard for us to begin to recognize that tension and release and this is not exclusive to sexuality. You know, we play this game in a way, though mostly unconsciously, where we allow, the mind allows tension to build with the anticipation of a time when that tension will be released. We can do it around longing for a vacation or a partner or some sexual activity. So you can just, uh, this is so important in all of our relationships is to have a sense of how the mind consciously or unconsciously bring it into the conscious realm, mindful realm. How is this mind playing the game of tension and release? It's not necessarily bad, that game. But we want to be conscious of it because it can you know, obviously create a lot of suffering. I mean, athletics can be this. Even even observing athletics, you know, really wanting a team to win, we create this idea in our mind, oh, I really want this side to win. And then when they win, there's that release. I really want this to be over, you know, whether it's the course or my cold. <clears throat> you know, just already I've had it for a few days now, and uh, <coughs> every time the my life energy starts to move again, I go, "Oh, I'm getting better." <clears throat> and then the disappointment. So there's that play with sexual energy too, and. Uh, it's just interesting how we casually, often casually, allow it to play out in so many relationships, that sexual tension, and even in relationships that, you know, maybe the odds are very, very, very low that we'll ever sort of actually have a sexual interaction, with an outward sexual or physical sexual interaction with the person. But, you know, flirting or teasing or playing in that way. And just to have a sense of what we're doing. Like, uh, are we playing with fire? Because that game of tension and release, it's like, on some level, the mind expects release. 
expects and it will like I, I noticed that too if I really wanted something or if that like even that sexual energy energy had gotten uh, stimulated in my mind it's like I need to throw the mind a carrot of some sort well you can have chocolate <laughs> or you can do this or you can do that And you, we probably all know what it's like when we're playing that game of tension and release when we don't, life doesn't provide the release. You know, we get irritable and, I mean, all kinds of difficult mind states, despondent, feeling betrayed or whatever. Another thing as I was reflecting that seems part of sexuality is this uh, dynamic of power that we, I don't know if this is inevitable, but maybe it is. But there seems to be a play, or not a play, but a expression of power in a lot of our, uh, a lot of aspects of our sexuality. And obviously, we don't have to read the news. It's amazing how, you know, the statistics say how um, common it is for there to be sexual violence. As I've been thinking about this the last few days, I've tried to put myself in other people's shoes, like walking, for example, walk today, just walking to the building in the afternoon, and I was thinking about some of these things, and a younger woman was walking toward me, and uh, you know, just getting a sense of what is it like, you know, I wonder what it's like from her point of view to be meeting a guy that she doesn't know, you know, on the street. Not that I look particularly dangerous or it was dark, it wasn't dark or anything like that. But, you know, I just, just kind of getting the difference in experience. There's an interesting video, I might have mentioned it in this class, I happened to see on this I think it's called Upworthy. Maybe some of you know that website. And there was this French video where they uh, changed the genders. So the, there was a guy who uh, was taking care of the kid and the wife was some hard-working professional. And, but anyway, he got abused by some women in a way that would be more typical the other way around, men abusing, harassing a woman. And um, he reported to the police station. It was, it was provocative in a lot of ways. It wasn't a perfect video, but it was, it was, it was interesting. It was definitely, I, I appreciate seeing it. But one of the powerful scenes was the guy reporting it in the police office, you know, talking to a female police officer. And, of course, everybody in the office... Almost everybody else in the office was uh, another female. And here he's talking to her about being harassed by other women. It was just so interesting to have it turned around. So, I mean, this is just one expression of power in sexuality and, you know, just the, the physical strength and physical uh, domination. But there's a lot of... Uh, place for emotional power and sexuality too. 
and uh, using attraction to get something, to get what we want. And all the little and big ways. You know, somebody likes us. Somebody's attracted to us. And what do we do with that? How, how, what does responsibility look like in that situation? Or what does integrity look like in that situation? Some of you know this uh, well-known Zen teacher in the country, Jan Chosen Bays. <coughs> She's a abbess of a monastery outside of Portland. I think it's called Great Vow Monastery. She's also a doctor, and I think she's worked in the area of kids who have been abused. She's got she's written a couple of things about sexual harassment. There's a couple of words that she said. The precepts have been compared to dikes in a rice field. They hold back and channel the rushing water of our passion so that life is not flooded, so that smaller and more helpless creatures are not harmed and the harvest of our life's efforts is not ruined. These precepts prohibit those actions that have a bad outcome and cause harm to ourselves or others. Almost all, maybe 99.999% of the time. Then she asks about, well, what about that other 0.001% of the time? It always seems like, <coughs> you know, especially when we're in the charge of that tension and release dynamic, it always seems that this maybe is okay, this time it's okay. She talks about how the Dalai Lama was asked about this once, like in terms of a teacher having a sexual relationship with a student, so kind of a classic power dynamic. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, maybe it's possible, but that person, that that person should be able to drink urine and eat feces, meaning their level of transcending aversion and desire would have to be at that level if someone is going to be able to be in that kind of a relationship without taking advantage of it, taking advantage of the power differential. She goes on a little later in this article. She says, from the Buddhist point of view, sexual harassment is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. If I believe that I am the subject, the center of the universe, then everything else is, is the object, the means by which my needs are met. Everything else then is used to affirm my separate and special existence and to relieve my fear that I will stop existing. Another aspect of um, sexuality seems to be uh, this um, in, it's related to the tension and release, but I think it's at a level, another or a different level of subtlety or a greater level of subtlety. But it's this uh, awareness of 
body, bodily energies. And I think a lot of it, or what, I think it has to do with a couple of things. One is that uh, often in our sexual relations and our sexual activities, the mind's more concentrated. So we just happen to be more aware of the body, more sensitive to the body. And, uh, and then I think also it's a really strong energy. So it's just easier to be aware of and to concentrate on. And especially because it's pleasant. And, you know, pleasantness is the ideal. A pleasant object is the ideal concentration object. The mind can really gather itself. And then this is really an interesting place, like to get this part of sexuality, you know, the kind of the coming alive of the body, as opposed to feeling like it's a heavy weight that we have to drag along through life, the body. Dull and unresponsive. And I think this also, understanding this part of sexuality, like the coming alive of the subtle energies of the body, it actually, I think, can help us work with sexual energy other than the obvious ways of having sexual relationships. Like there may be other ways to bring the body alive, like eating chocolate, <laughs> or being physical in different ways, dancing, moving, playing, and to learn how to let these energies move freely, which is sometimes part of that joy of our actual sexual activities when the energy is less congealed, I guess you could say. The physical energies of the body are less congealed We can think about these energies of the body, you know, that's nature. And the nature, the particular nature of the energies of the body are to move. That's their their nature is to move. And uh, we have a, a funny and neurotic relationship with the energies of the body. On the one hand, we're mostly obsessed with the energies of the body. And on the other hand, we don't really, we're in a way afraid to let them move because we'll lose control. We don't know that experience of just things moving. Some of you might know in French, you know, the word for, or the phrase for orgasm means um, a little, the little death. And there's a, there's a sense, you know, when the bodily experience is really intensely pleasant, there is a little death of the self because it's so attractive when the bodily sensations are intensely pleasant. It's so attractive to the mind that the mind is willing to let go of everything in order to be there for that pleasant experience. And so this is a, it's a, It's related to uh, experiences of rapture, too, that people, some of you have had in your meditation or just bumped into in life in different places. 
It'd be nice, you know, it's so nice to uh, um, have places in our lives where we can talk about these things. I was just thinking some examples in my life, and then I thought better about sharing them. <laughs> and in a way, it's, it's too bad that uh, we have, I have, you know, fear and mistrust, and it's just not that common uh, and or not considered appropriate to talk about these things. And uh, you see, you see what this is about. This goes back, brings us back to the first part of sexuality, the tension and release. I mean, part of what propels or causes so much um, of an un- dark underbelly to sexuality is this investment we have in tension and release. Because when we make it culturally, make it bad, then it has more of a charge. And then, in a way, in a funny way, it has more of a release when we sort of break that taboo or you know, do what we shouldn't be doing. So I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> Are we recording this? <laughs> oh, I can just do this, right? And, you know, especially in Buddhism, but in meditative circles, we talk all the time, you hear all the time about sort of weird 
energy experiences that people have. And so some, so much of our fascination with sexuality and what gives it a charge, it's one of the few places we feel the force of nature in a more intimate, primal way. And it's always here. I mean, where would it go? And why are we so distant, distant from it? You know, it's really, I mean, it really, it should, I think, break our hearts, this ossification. You know, we learn to distance ourselves from nature. And then we more and more neurotically crave to be part of nature. There's a really beautiful chapter in um, Reb Anderson's book, uh, being upright, he's talking about the, I think the 16 bodhisattva vows, and, and they're similar to the five precepts, they're just in a more expanded form. And so uh, here's a chapter on not misusing sexuality. He says, how does sexual greed arise? Self and other are seen as separate. We project reality upon separation. From a belief in the reality of this perception, the peaceful mind of the oneness of self and other is obscured. This belief wounds our consciousness, and the wound is a source of anxiety and pain. A powerful impulse arises to reunite the split mind. If this other were really other, then we could could live without being in union with it. But because it's not really other, our yearning is very strong. Sexual greed is powerful because at its root is this deep pain of separation. We will do almost anything, grab onto any, anyone, if we feel it will help close the painful gap and heal the wound. We must recognize that in our wounded state, we are dangerous to ourselves and to others as well. Acting out sexual greed is actually a form of stealing, sexual stealing. The precept of not misusing sexuality is concerned with reversing this process of wounding. It points a way of turning from sexual stealing to sexual healing. A little later he says, In this lifetime we are all sexual beings. In order to realize the enlightenment of the Buddhas, We must be intimate with our whole sexual being, moment by moment, standing, sitting, walking, or lying down. We vow to be intimate, to be upright with this great ball of fire. If we turn away from our sexual passion, then we freeze and beings are harmed. If we grab it, then we are burned and beings are harmed. But if we just stay close to it, walk around it, always in touch with the fact that we are sexual beings, neither identifying nor distancing ourselves from our sexuality. Then we gradually become intimate with it. From this intimacy, appropriate sexual conduct spontaneously emerges. We know this infinite warmth and love are there, but we do not reveal it until the time is right. We vow to stay upright, to stay close to our passion, constantly working with it, dancing with it. It's always there, and we are present too. It may get stronger or weaker according to circumstances, but we are working with it all the time. 
So another related aspect of uh, sexuality seems to be, and it's, it's not different than the other things we've talked about, but something to do with safety. It's like, a, and not safety in an ultimate sense, but a kind of grounding where uh, sort of the glue of a committed relationship, this is something that you and I share. So we've got this pact. We're in this together. This is our glue. The sexual relationships. Something we share just you and me. <coughs> and then we get a sense that commitment uh, provides some sense of safety for us. Like a secret pact. You've seen my body. You've touched my body. I let you touch me. I let you be intimate with me. And vice versa. So you can, we can look at that sense of safety. You know, we hear that a lot culturally, like, oh, you're cheap in it. And I think that's what people, you know, right or wrong, that's what people are pointing to. It's that you'll lose that sacred bond, that sense of safety that some people seem to be able to get. Then the other aspect of sexuality is uh, is uh, like a means or a place to express friendliness and play and like loving affection, kindness, pleasing each other, making another person be happy, even if it's a you know relatively temporary happiness. But there's this whole. I mean, obviously, this is part of our sexual lives is that uh, sort of uh, learning how to make ourselves and each other happy and have a pleasant experience. And we get a lot of, uh, you know, it, it has a sort of a shadow side, which is when life feels dull or boring, or not important, then I'll do this. I'll have a sexual encounter. And it may, I, I see this a lot even in my relationship with my wife. It's like, um, you know, the, what is the initiating energy? Is it just because I'm bored? Or like, I, is it a, I, I deserve a reward? Life is hard, so I deserve a reward. <clears throat> or is it a more natural, like, consensual play? And just a, a beautiful way to express affection and kindness and appreciation. And the last thing that came to mind as I was sort of unpacking my own experience of sexuality is just a, more of a sense of... Um, I don't really like using the word the divine or sacred, but I'm not sure of a better word. But just a sense that um, a way of of putting, going beyond what feels superficial. And, you know, I have to say that you know, this is more of a rare event than a common event. And uh, 
it's interesting how you know those those times they aren't easily replicated when you want to replicate them you know when the act of love making or whatever you want to call it just felt like a kind of a beautiful meditation or a release that was more than physical or a letting go that was more than just physical more than just physical pleasantness so these are some of the the different pieces that seem true in my life as a sexual being it's pleasant there's this dynamic of power that seems to come into it there's this revealing of a subtle energies of the body and it's a great mystery it's an interesting I mean we're naturally interested in these subtle energies of the body and when these subtle energies <clears throat> move it always feels good and when they appear to be stuck or resist there's a resistance it always feels not pleasant and there seems to be something on some psychological level around safety that gets played out in this area of our lives and something to do with basic friendliness and affection and kindness and play in this part and i think it can be as much as any activity uh a spiritual experience but there's a lot of cultural and other kinds of conditioning that we have to learn to not be confused by and just want to talk about that a little bit before I open it up for discussion some of these forces that shape it like you know for however many millions of years or billions probably because it's not just in terms of human sexuality but you know the genetic code has been driven by this reproductive force and so that's obviously playing itself out here whatever that is and then there's all the cultural programming and of course the two are not unrelated and i don't know if we get ever unpack what's cultural and what's genetic or distinguish <coughs> i mentioned the whole thing about you know the naughtiness of sex that's you know of course culturally based and just you know related to culture is also this whole psychological process of i creating an, an identity for ourselves gender identification whether we identify in a more binary way or in a non-binary way but one way or another we're using sexuality to kind of create an identity that we then use to relate to others in the world and that of course affects how we dress how we present ourselves our body language how we use power how we use language <coughs> all of these things you know we can't really tease out what's you know part of some sexual expression and what's part of every other social dynamic you know where does my you know from my identification point of view maleness where does that end and 
Where does my humanness begin? Or my being white? Or my being, you know, well-educated? Or my being an American? Or being affluent? Or being, you know, all these other identifications. What's what and what's the other? It's not like there are, they exist in separate categories. So we have this huge psychological and cultural programming, genetic programming, huge forces that we know, we can know clearly that are that they're there, but not really get to the bottom of them. I mean, we see them expressing themselves, but doesn't mean we can, uh, yeah, that we can sort of stop being surprised by them. And then just another aspect of this and how it plays out in terms of our relationship is just this fixation on youth and the relationship between sexuality and youthfulness and all that that does and how we look at each other and uh, how that relates to status, you know, and all the things around physical appearance and the way that we judge and evaluate and hate. Sally Tisdale wrote an article, Nothing Special, The Buddhist Sex Quandary. This was long ago in Tricycle, I think in the early 90s. She says in that article, I've come to believe that there is something in the nature of sex itself that is capable of disturbing the most disinterested of minds. And this is important because even if you feel that your sexuality is pretty staid or under control or whatever, you know, just we participate even as spectators, which is participating. You know, just uh, reading about the Catholic priests or reading about, you know, where we go on the websites, what news articles we tend to be interested in. I mean, clearly, when you see, I mean, people who advertise and people who market things and try to manipulate people, they know what they're doing and they always use sex you know, sexual ideas and sexual images. So we have to own this and not be ashamed of it or afraid of it. We have to sort of see this. And I think one of the best ways is to be, to learn how to talk about it with each other and just to find those circles where you feel safe enough to begin to talk about. And initially it probably means talking about our fear of talking about it and our fear of being honest about it, and our fear of even looking at it. or There's just so much pain and shame. I was talking to somebody recently, and this person was uh, conveying a time long ago when they uh, realized that it was pleasant to touch themselves. And so they were pretty young. And so they told their mom, and... Uh, you know, the mom, being dealing with her own stuff, said, don't do that. <laughs> and, you know, and this person was like, 
so amazed that the body could feel good. And uh, isn't it interesting that, you know, and clearly, you know, many of us, through our own (laughs) sort of exploits, have realized that it isn't an end in itself, this, this kind of energy, whether we're acting it out alone, masturbating, or seeking out sexual experiences, or uh, seeking it out through stories or novels or wherever, you know, living inside of other people we see in the movies. Clearly, that isn't satisfying. It's not an end in itself. But being afraid of it also isn't an end in itself. So this is an interesting dynamic we find ourselves in. You know, like Reb Anderson says, this great ball of life energy. I think that's actually maybe a more useful way to talk about it, kind of life energy. And, you know, one of the things as your sitting practice develops and you get into more subtle states, you know, you feel you feel the energy moving. And, you, and it really becomes clear. It's not just a statement you hear, but energy just wants to move. And it will find a way to move. It doesn't like being stuck. <coughs> Culturally, genetically, biologically, you know, one of the ways energy moves is through sexual activity or the sexual act or sexual release. So it's really interesting to explore like other ways for that energy to move. So maybe it can come out of the heart or maybe it can express itself in any number of different ways so that the whole body, the whole mind, the whole heart comes alive, like the energy isn't stuck moving in only one way. Let me just finish reading this. She says, sexual desire is a matter of psyche, the body, the emotions, the ego, and an animating life energy together. It is irrational, inconvenient, often unexpected, and sometimes so illogical, so overwhelming as to seem mad. So we could, I could talk about this for a long time, but I wanted to save a little bit of time. So we have about 15 minutes. And, um, yeah, just uh, any questions and uh, experiences. And, you know, we're, we're looking at the, in particular, looking at the charge you've experienced, the sexual charge that comes up in our relationships and how to navigate that, how so often we're unskillful, how in those times when we've navigated it in a way that seems skillful, what were the supporting causes that allowed us to be skillful with sexual energy in relationship with others? Or anything that comes to mind around this topic? Yeah, Tim. Thank you. 
when you're going to get stuck. Thanks, Tim, for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Other thoughts? Yeah. Plot P. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but but those more transcendent moments, at least in my experience, um, were completely ephemeral. And this is a thing about uh, why we have to why why I think celibacy can be really powerful and useful. But what I don't think is useful is somehow bypassing the whole experience of being a sexual being because one way or another, I think we have to see it for what it is and also see it for what it isn't, like it, that it isn't a salvation. And so if that requires a lot of sexual experiences, great. I don't think it necessarily has to require a lot of sexual experience. But I think one way or another we have to see it for what it is. Because then we can get on to what real freedom is. And you know, culturally we make it into something huge. And so we have a cultural burden to go beyond that. And this is what, you know, one of the reasons aging, the aging process is so disturbing for us, I think, is that, you know, so, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you see this, that so many of those possibilities start not seeming likely anymore. You know, whatever those possibilities were. Um, And uh, so then what is the meaning of life? Because early on, having those special experiences, that was the whole point of being alive. And then as we see that, well, I'm not that likely to have those amazing special experiences so, in a way, and, and uh, I think you're probably, that was Wellwood maybe who, who said that. I'm not sure, it could have been uh, the woman that I read from last week, um, Hiver. But anyway, I think we have to be disappointed if we've had uh, conditioned into the mind expectations, then we have to, be, we have to grieve the loss of that idea or those ideas, that as a salvation, whether it's some kind of perfect relationship with another human being or some kind of perfect sexual experience or any kind of utopian vision. It could be a communal experience, a vision or expectation that somehow the Kamigawa community is going to be so harmonious and so skillful together. But we have to understand that on this level, life is messy and disappointing. And we have to grieve the loss of utopia and uh, perfection in order to be real and in order to be free. Because freedom isn't about constructing a utopia or having a perfect experience. Freedom is in the heart not resisting the way it is. That's that's the freedom that we're interested in. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. <coughs> sexuality or being 
Or in Buddhism, we might say it's the absence of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. So we, we often talk about it in the negative because it makes it a little bit more, it helps to operationalize like what the practice is. Instead of trying to find the heart, we're learning skillful means for the mind <clears throat> abandoning its identification with greed, anger, and delusion. Yeah, Patrice. Oh, yeah. And, and that's probably acting itself out, not just in our sexual relations, but all the time, that whole thing about safety. And, um, you know, w- w- what is the cost, what is the danger of being revealing, being open or truthful? And uh, <clears throat> that, that's sort of what I was picking up, too, just in passing that woman on the street. 
it's like it's a total different experience for her. I've been kind of observing this over the years, of course. But like, uh, you know, we have a pretty friendly neighborhood. And it's always interesting to me when a woman who's alone will actually raise her head and make contact and say hi. Because a lot of times they won't. And uh, sometimes they will. And I just, I'm sort of beginning to comprehend that difference. It's a very different world that that means a very different thing than when I do it. And uh, and this is, a, this is another thing, you're pointing out another thing, which is, it's like, it's not easy for us because of, because of gender differences, but also because of we don't know people's backgrounds and, and how they've been wounded or hurt or whatever, empowered in their lives. And so it's really hard for us to read like each other's body language and, and other words. We have to end it here. It's 9 o'clock. But we'll have small groups next week, so hopefully the conversation will continue. And the other thing we'll talk about next week is um, we'll look at um, conflict and resolution of conflict. (coughs) And in this context, we can talk more about difference, cultural conditioning, and power, which obviously there's a lot to say there. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.